Hello, and welcome to Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you are a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. If you work for a living, this podcast is for you. It contains important information that your perspective, current, or former employer does not want you to know, including the basics of your rights and obligations in the workplace, as well as practical tips on how to level the playing field regarding issues that arise every day on the job. Each future episode will feature an expert on the workplace or a guest who may tell us about his or her particular occupation. In this episode about the rights of current employees, I am honored to have Kelly Malloy Myers as our guest. Kelly is the managing partner of Freaking Myers and Rule and the immediate past president of the Cincinnati Bar Association and a member of the board of trustees of the Cincinnati Bar Association. She is also the former president of the Cincinnati Bar Foundation, and Kelly received her law degree from the University of Cincinnati College of Law and earned a master's in labor and employment relations from the University of Cincinnati. Kelly is a highly skilled employment lawyer representing current and former employees throughout Ohio and Northern Kentucky. She practices in state and federal courts. Kelly was one of the first attorneys in the state of Ohio to be certified by the Ohio State Bar Association as a specialist in labor and employment law. Kelly is an active member of the National Employment Lawyers Association and its local counterpart, the Cincinnati Employment Lawyers Association. We're going to go on and on here. Kelly's also active in the Cincinnati Bar Association, having served as president, chair of the Young Lawyers Section, chair of the Women's Lawyers Section, and president of the Cincinnati Bar Foundation, as I mentioned earlier. Kelly, welcome to the show. Is there anything else you have done in your career? That's a long list. Hi. Thanks, Randy. Thanks for having me. I've done a few things. Um, most of all, spending a great career at Freaking Myers and Roll. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, today we are going to discuss one of my favorite topics, and that is what rights do employees have while they are employed? You know, should an employee wait to be fired before learning of his or her rights on the job? As we discussed in episode one, I think it is critical that people learn their rights as an employee as early as possible after they enter the workforce. Working is such a major part of our lives, but there is very little education about employment rights during our schooling, and too often people rely upon well-intentioned co-workers, friends and family members, or even well-intentioned members of the Human Resources Department at their company. Other times, employees will surf the web for answers often only to become more confused. So Kelly, uh, 
Tell us a little bit about your experience with whether current employees of a company should actually call a lawyer for advice. I think it is a great idea for current employees to reach out to an attorney for advice. And it may just be an initial consultation. We spend an hour or so talking about the situation. We give the employee a roadmap of things to watch out for and things to do to put themselves in the best place where they can protect themselves. Most of the people who come in for consultations that I see have actually been terminated. So what's happened has happened and then we have to deal with it. Um, But the employees who come in proactively when they're still working, uh, we can set some uh, expectations to try to prolong their employment, to try to give them advice on what to look out for, what to do to protect themselves. And I always tell my clients, it's better to have a job than a lawsuit seven days of the week. Absolutely. So is it more common these days for current employees to uh, call or come in uh, rather than 10, 20 years ago? I think it's a bit more common. Yes. I mean, I see many people who are current employees and it's, I think people come in more than they used to. Um, But I think that there's still a lot of people who don't come in until really they've already been fired. And what are some of the typical situations that a current employee might call you about? Well, current employees call when they begin to notice that things aren't going well with their employment. If they receive a disciplinary action or a disciplinary warning, if they're put on a performance improvement plan, or if they're in just a bad employment situation, they have a boss that they're not getting along with, or they're having trouble with getting along with their supervisor or there may be coworkers uh, that they're having issues with. So typically when things start going sideways is when uh, an employee will reach out for advice. And what, what can they do in a situation like that? They get a warning uh, from their boss, the boss is unhappy with their performance or the boss is unhappy about they came into work late or left early. What in the world can they do about that anyway? Well, if they receive disciplinary action that they think is unfair or untrue, uh, one thing that they can do is try to rebut that. So put a statement, ask that their manager or human resources put their statement, their rebuttal to the disciplinary action in the record. Now, oftentimes, if an employer is starting to give disciplinary action, formal disciplinary action, or a performance improvement plan, uh, the employment is starting to document in advance of potentially a termination. So I think it's important for that employee to put their side of the story in the record so that it's on record as well. Sometimes uh, the, the manager may think, okay, you've got a point there. Let's, let's see what we can do to fix this situation. And sometimes it's just protecting themselves so that they have uh, their response on the record as well. Now, you've mentioned the performance improvement plan. What what exactly is a performance improvement plan? Not so sure that's a common term for a lot of people who have not been in the situation, for example. A lot of employers, and I'd say typically larger employers, larger corporations, use a formal disciplinary process uh, that consists of what's called a performance improvement plan or a PIP. And it's basically a plan of action for a period of 60 days or 90 days where the employer's manager uh, sets forth expectations for the employee to meet. 
tasks that they're supposed to do, uh, goals that they're supposed to reach for a period of time. And then ideally, the employer is supposed to meet with the employee regularly over that period. Um, it's either going to give the employee, ideally employers will tell you it's so that the employee has an opportunity to understand the expectations and achieve the expectations of their manager. So it gives the employee an opportunity to, to know what's expected of them and try to meet those requirements so that they're not terminated. And sometimes I think they're used just to paper uh, paper the file so that the employer has a documented opportunity to exit the employee. Yeah, do those tend to come later in the disciplinary process, like after a warning or two? Yes, I, I find that they generally come later. First, the employer will give perhaps coaching, which is verbal verbal discussions with the employee. And sometimes the employee doesn't even realize that the employer is, is considering that disciplinary action. We find out later that the employer is saying, well, you received verbal disciplinary action. We coached you on all these days. And the employee didn't recognize that that was disciplinary action. The employer may also use written disciplinary action or written warning. And then I think after a few warnings, that's when corporations will put the formal performance improvement plan or PIP in place. Now, if the employee disagrees with the performance improvement plan, is that a time when they really should come see a lawyer? Yes, absolutely. I think it's good to seek proactive advice at that point in time because there's questions to ask about the PIP or the performance improvement plan. Uh, are the expectations reasonable? Is the time frame that's been outlined reasonable? Are the expectations consistent with what the employee's coworkers are expected to do? So we'd want to try to look at those things and help the employee think about those options and then help give them some uh, a roadmap for how to, how to work towards achieving the PIP. Now you talk about maybe putting together a rebuttal to a warning or a PIP. Is, are there any downsides to doing that? In other words, should an employee always do that or are there pros and cons? I think that as long as the employee uh, acknowledges that they will certainly uh, try to work towards meeting the expectations and that they're open to constructive criticism and then articulate what is unreasonable or what's um, different than their, their coworkers' treatment, that's what's important. And the problem is, is you know, a supervisor who puts an employee on a PIP often doesn't want to uh, hear the employee disagree with them. Um, so it may, it may ratchet up the, the heat on the employee, but that could be retaliation if the employee has engaged in protected activity, which is saying, hey, I think you're treating me differently than my younger coworkers or my male coworkers. Okay. And what about, um, I've heard of employees copying uh, documents uh, that they have at work and taking them home. Is that permissible to do? If it's a document that was given to you as the employee, the disciplinary action or a performance improvement plan or your performance evaluation or your compensation documents, yes, it's perfectly fine for the employee to have copies of that and to take those documents home. What an employee should be really cautious about is taking any company documents 
that aren't theirs home, any documents that might contain confidential or proprietary information about other employees or the company's business practices, uh, that can give the employer an opportunity to argue that the employee violated company policy or procedure by taking documents. But one thing the employee might want to do is if they are if they have a computer at work, just create a folder. If there's documents, sales documents that, that shows what the sales metrics were, the employee compared to their peers, keep that in a place on your computer. Don't email it to yourself at home, but just keep it so that if you are terminated and if we're uh, getting into discovery or litigation, we can request that and we know where it is and we know where to request it. Now, I often hear people talk about their personnel file at work. Is it really their personnel file, the employee's personnel file? It is actually the employer's document. There is no federal law that requires that an employer give an employee a copy of their personnel file. There are some states that have laws that do allow an employee to at least review a copy of their personnel file on a periodic basis, such as California or Colorado. Ohio doesn't have a law like that. Um, but most, I'd say most companies do have a policy uh, or a practice in place where upon request, an employee is at least allowed to review a copy of their personnel file. They may not be given a copy of it, which is why I said, you know, keep keep your copy of your personnel or your performance evaluation or any disciplinary action. Now that's for private sector employees. Public sector employees have a little more access to those documents through public records requests, uh, those kinds of uh, avenues for public sector. So a public employee has, does have a right to a copy of their personnel file? Yes, they can. we can obtain personnel files for public sector employees generally through public records requests. It's different, though, for employees in the private sector. Okay. And, and along those lines, some, I guess some employees have lockers uh, or other property that's on the company's premises, you know, their, their desk they work at, for example. Do employees have a right to privacy? In other words, is whatever content you have in your locker something that an employer cannot look at? Or things in your desk? What about your desk drawer? If your boss comes in and wants to look through your desk drawer while you're not there, is that permissible? Well, employees have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the workplace, but it's going to be very case-by-case specific. So, for example, um, an employee would have a high expectation of privacy of their body. So it would be, uh, they would potentially have a claim against an employer if an employer uh, conducts a body search with no with no reason for that. A locker, well, it's gonna be fact by fact specific. Is there some valid reason why the employer needs to conduct a search? Is there, has there been theft at work? Is there some threat of violence? Is, are, is there some question about drug use at work? And many employers will put uh, policies in place trying to escape liability for a, a privacy claim from its employees. Uh, the idea is that if the employer has this policy saying we have a right to search lockers or desks on the premises, that lowers the employee's expectation of privacy in those items. 
I think the employee just has to, the best case practice for employees is to assume that their employer uh, can look in their lockers or their desk, but there's a higher expectation of privacy, say, like I mentioned, of the employee's actual personal self. There's a high expectation of privacy in, in bathrooms and locker rooms where uh, the courts would not look favorably on an employer putting cameras, for example, in a, in a company bathroom. So if there's, there's any question about that, whether an employee has a question about a locker search or a desk search, I think they should talk to an employment attorney uh, to see if there have been any rights that have been violated. Now, we talked about like warnings and performance reviews, uh, what you call a PIP. Um, are employers required to give employees those kind of things before they're fired? No, an employer is not required to give an employee a warning or a performance improvement plan before termination. However, many companies do that as a matter of policy or practice. Um, the idea um, is to give the employee a chance to understand the expectations and improve their performance. Or if more cynically, the idea might be to uh, provide a paper trail justifying an ultimate termination. And I'd say most companies do provide some sort of warning before they just terminate an employee, but there's no legal requirement that they do so. Okay. And then sometimes these warnings or performance improvement plans are given to you as a document and there's a signature line down there. Often the manager will sign it or the boss will sign it. And then there's a line for the employee to sign it. Is the employee obligated to sign a warning if the employer requests them to do so? An employee is not obligated to sign it. My advice to an employee would be sign it, acknowledging receipt, but indicate if you do dispute it, acknowledge receipt, but disagree. And then you can put your, um, your response to the warning, ask that it be put in the record along with the, the written document. Okay. That's kind of the rebuttal you were talking about before. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's probably enough about warnings and performance improvement plans. Now, I imagine there are some people that call you that feel they're being discriminated while they are employed. Are there laws that protect people even if they are not fired? Yes. So as you've talked about in earlier uh, sessions of the podcast, there are a lot of laws protecting employees in the workplace. Title VII is a federal law that prohibits discrimination on the base of, basis of gender, race, religion, national origin, color. The ADEA prohibits discrimination on the basis of age if you're 40 and over. The Americans with Disability Act prohibits discrimination on the basis of disability. It also requires reasonable accommodation of a disability. So an employee doesn't necessarily have to be terminated for those laws to protect them. For example, in the uh, instance of a disability, uh, an employer has an, a legal obligation to accommodate an employee uh, to engage in what's called an interactive process, which is just basically talking to the employee about what that employee needs and how it can be given to the employee as an accommodation. Um, also, I would say that generally, uh, sometimes people come in 
because they've not they've been passed over for promotions a time or two or three. So that's certainly an area of inquiry that you'd want to get legal advice on. If if people are being promoted over you and you think it's because of you know, you're, you're sitting there as a female and watching all, all the men be promoted over you, or you've been at a company for 30 years and you're 50 years old and suddenly all your coworkers who are much younger than you with less experience, less tenure with the company are being promoted. Those can be issues that you want to, you want to talk to an attorney about. Um, if an employee demotes you, takes duties away from you, uh, basically puts you into a lesser role that could be uh, pr- that's protected under the laws as well. Okay. Um, hey, aside from discrimination, what about harassment on the job? I hear a lot of people say that they are in a hostile work environment. What exactly is illegal in that context? You know, what exactly is an illegal hostile work environment? There are several types of behavior that would be actionable. The big one being sexual harassment. Sexual harassment is illegal under Title VII and Ohio state law. So that could be two different things or a couple of different types of harassment. It could be what's called quid pro quo, something for something, where your boss is is telling you, hey, unless you go out on a date with me or unless you... uh, Engage in something worse. (laughs) Yes, yeah, engage in something worse. I'm going to fire you or you're not going to get that promotion. That would be illegal sexual harassment. Uh, There's also hostile environment sex harassment where it would be things such as um, pictures posted. And that still happens even in 2020. Pictures posted in the workplace or or behavior where a male male boss is calling him women employees by pejorative names, uh, using the B word or the C word when talking about women. Um, So that sex harassment is unlawful and also harassment based on protected classes. And protected classes are the things that that the federal laws and state laws uh, prohibit discrimination against. So as we talked about gender, race, religion, national origin, color, disability, age. Um, So if an employee is being harassed based on one of those characteristics, that can be actionable. If you're an African-American employee and you're going to work and you're finding a noose left on your desk or or comments written on bathroom walls that are racist, that can be an actionable hostile environment claim. Now, you know, I think a lot of employees are probably listening to this and saying, hey, this is great for the lawyer to say I should complain, but geez, if I complain, they're probably going to fire me. So uh, Kelly, is it a good idea to complain about discrimination or harassment while you're still employed? I mean, what are some of the pros and cons, I guess? I think the pros and cons are the pros are of complaining is you put your employer on notice that there's a problem. You give them an opportunity to address it and fix it. If an employer doesn't know about sex harassment, they may be able to escape liability if they can validly argue that they were not aware of the harassment. So it's important to put the employer on notice by complaining. Also, retaliation, so 
terminating an employee because they complained about a protected activity is illegal. Um, so that can provide some protection to the employee. It doesn't mean necessarily that the worst won't happen and they won't be, be fired if they complained, but I don't know that it's really going to change. If, if the employee is subject to a hostile environment and it's a bad, toxic employment relationship anyway, I think it's better to complain, put the employer on notice, and if, and if the employee is terminated, if the employer is one that doesn't do the right thing and fires the employee who is trying to uh, tell them that they've got a problem on their hands, the employee has, has avenues of redress, redress through the legal system. I often think that the word complain is sometimes misused. You know, I, I like to think of it as they're reporting something as opposed to complaining. And so is it important how they put their employer on notice? I think the best way to do that is let management or human resources know. I think it's important to put the report, which I think you're right. I mean, you're really reporting to the employer that there's a, a problem that they should be aware of so that they can take steps to fix it. Um, so I think it's important to put it in writing or at least if you have a verbal conversation to follow, follow it up with an email or follow it up in writing. I just wanted to confirm we spoke today about this issue. Um, and then I also think it's important for employees who are in a situation like that, who sometimes I refer to it as a, as a toxic uh, work environment, keep a journal at home. It doesn't have to be fancy. Just get a three ring binder, keep notes of what's happening. Try to capture the who, what, when, and where. Who, who was there? What happened? When it happened? Where it happened? Um, having those contemporaneous notes can be very helpful if, you're, if you are fired and we're working with you to try to bring a claim or negotiate a resolution, a severance or something with, with a former employer. Well, you mentioned something in there about uh, confirming a conversation you had with your boss. Isn't it just good enough to have a talk with your boss if you're going to report a problem? I mean, what's, what's the point of putting something in writing? Well, yes, just talking to them is, is fine. That's enough to rise to the level of protected activity under the law so that the, so that the employee is protected from retaliation. But I think the better practice is to have it documented so that there's no question about it. And, and there's also a continuum. You know, you can start off where you just try to address it verbally and see what happens. If it's addressed quickly to, to the employee's satisfaction and things improve, then great. But if things don't improve, if the employer doesn't address it, if the bad behavior continues, then you want to escalate your reporting and your documentation of that reporting as well. You know, there's a lot of talk about sexual harassment with the Me Too movement. Kelly, what's your view? I, I often hear that people say, well, I can't prove that. I can't prove my boss said these things to me. It's kind of a he said, she said problem. And if I don't have any witnesses, I can't do anything about it. Can they? Yes. Yes. You don't need to have necessarily witnesses to sexual harassment for it to be believed. Employers should believe an employee who comes forward and reports sexual harassment. It should trigger 
an investigation, even though, even if it is just one employee raising the complaint of sex harassment. So people should be believed, investigations should be triggered. If the employer does not do that, that's a problem and that's an issue. Um, the employer has access to other employees. They may be able to interview uh, other coworkers or former employees who reported to that supervisor and are no longer there. So I don't think people should be afraid to come forward and report it. A lot of people, um, obviously, a lot of people work, uh, their work is very, very important to them. And it's their livelihood. That's how they pay their mortgage and they pay their groceries. And that's where their insurance is. So there's a lot of fear about coming forward if you're a victim of sex harassment. Um, but I think it is important to do that so that you protect yourself as best you can in the workplace, and you may be protecting other people that you don't even know about. Yeah, and, and I, guess, I suppose if there's no witnesses, uh, one possibility is the tape record conversations with the harasser. Is that permissible to do? I mean, can I turn on my iPhone and just hit my record button or buy a recorder at uh, Radio Shack if they're still in business? I'm not even sure, <laughs> sure they're still in business. Can you go out and buy a recorder and kind of put it in your pocket and hopefully turn lawn uh, while somebody's harassing you? Is that legal to do? Well, it depends on the state. There are state-by-state uh, -state laws that deal with recording people's conversations. Ohio is a one-party consent state. So what that means is as long as one party to the conversation is aware that it's being recorded, at least it's not illegal. Now, whether it's a good idea is a different question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you don't want to leave a recorder in a room and walk out and record your supervisor and HR talking <laughs> about you. That's, that's not good. That's probably illegal. And it's probably a bad idea if they find out you're recording them. Yeah, it's probably a bad idea as well. I've never really been in favor of recording for a couple of reasons. One, usually the recording doesn't capture what the employee hopes to capture anyway. It's very rare that I've ever heard a recording uh, that catches the employer saying something red-handed. You know, I don't see a lot of smoking gun recordings. It's hearing things, papers rustling around in pockets and things like that. Um, the other problem with recordings is that sometimes employers have policies that prohibit tape recording in the workplace. So you can potentially give the employer an excuse to, to terminate you or a defense to uh, a legal action against them. And the other thing is juries, I think juries don't tend to like secret tape recordings. It just doesn't look mm -hmm. good for the employee who's done it. I, I think that the contemporaneous notes that the employee keeps uh, tend to be better than, than secret tape recordings. So in other words, after the boss says something stupid to the employee or obnoxious or sexual, the employee can go write it down someplace. Yep. Write it down. Keep a journal. Much like an employer keeps notes about employees. Exactly. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be, you know, spelled perfectly and grammatically correct. Just keep a journal. Try to capture the date that it happened, the time, what was said, who said it. 
And, you know, if anybody else was present when it occurred. Okay. Hey, thanks, Kelly, for all of that. Um, How about, uh, let's move on to the issue of pay. Mm -hmm. Uh, I read reports from time to time that say that that women are paid anywhere between 70 and 80% of what a man makes. Yes. Is there anything illegal about that? Or is that just up to an employer to decide what to pay people? Well, the Equal Pay Act prohibits wage discrimination on the basis of gender, but it still exists in this country. Um, Unfortunately, women typically uh, are paid, I think it's 70, I think it's up to 79 cents on the dollar currently. Um, The question is- Well, that's an improvement anyway, I guess. (laughs) I I guess. Um, The question is, is, is a woman paid less for doing the same work or comparable work to her male supervisors. It tends to be very fact by fact uh, specific, but I think that if a woman believes that her male peers, co-workers are being paid more than her, it's really important to get the advice of an attorney. There's statutes of limitations that apply um, and an Equal Pay Act claim. I think employers tend to uh, pay attention to that because there can be some significant liability if that if that's an issue. Probably if they're paying uh, one woman right. in a discriminatory fashion, they're probably paying a bunch of women discriminatorily. Right. It could, there could be a, a class there or a multi-plaintiff, uh, multi, several employees being affected by it. And what about minimum wage these days and overtime compensation? People talk about $15 an hour. A living wage. I don't think we're quite there yet in Ohio or Kentucky, are we? No, we're not quite there yet. There has been uh, recent attention paid in legislatures about paying employees a living wage. Um, A lot of full-time working employees are still working under the poverty level in this country, a lot of employees who are working more than one job still are under the poverty level if they have families with, you know, a couple of children. So in Ohio in 2020, the minimum wage is $8.70 an hour. The federal minimum wage is less than that, $7.25 an hour. So yay, Ohio. Um, Yeah, that's pretty amazing. (laughs) Right. But we're not quite to a living wage uh, or a $15 an hour minimum. And I think that uh, hopefully we're moving that way. There have been other states um, that are focused on this as well. Um, There have been industries that have focused on minimum wage, the fast food industry. There's been a lot of discussion and talk about employees in that industry who have been um, speaking out and speaking up to try to to try to get employers to pay a living wage. And what what the uh, types of employees are entitled to minimum wage? Is everybody entitled to a minimum wage? Well, uh, people who are paid tips aren't necessarily entitled to the uh, the employer doesn't have to pay the minimum wage, but with tips it has to it has to come up to a threshold. Um, some seasonal employees are not entitled to minimum wage. Most employees are. If you have any questions about that, um, talk to an employer. You can also look at the uh, Department of Labor has facts 
online about those questions like that. The DOL.gov has a FAQ section about minimum wage laws. Most employees are covered by minimum wage with some exceptions, like I said, like tipped workers, seasonal workers, that kind of thing. How about overtime pay? When is an employee entitled to overtime compensation? So employees who are non-exempt, which means uh, they're non-exempt from overtime requirements, which are employees that are in non-management roles, uh, non-professional roles, are entitled to overtime under the Fair Labor Standard Act, which is a federal law, the FLSA. And that law requires that employees be paid time and a half for hours over 40 per week. So an employer can have an employee work, say, three 12-hour days. The employee is not entitled to overtime for those hours over eight hours a day. They're not entitled to overtime on Saturdays and Sundays or holidays. But if they work more than 40 hours a week, that's when the overtime requirements kick in. Now, some employers have policies or say a lot of union employees are protected by collective bargaining agreements or contracts that provide overtime for beyond what the the minimum law requires, which is overtime for 40 hours or more, for for over 40 hours per week. But um, but the law just requires time and a half for 40 hours, over 40 hours per week for non-exempt employees. Now, the big question there is what's an exempt employee and what's a non-exempt employee. A lot of employers, uh, I think, take some liberties with characterizing employees as exempt or salaried employees when they really don't meet those requirements uh, under the law. So if you have questions about whether you're, you're really properly characterized as exempt and you're not getting overtime, I think you should talk to an employment attorney. Uh, That's another reason why an employee who's a current employee may want to come in. It's not necessarily to sue their employer, but just get some advice about what your rights are and what you may be able to do if you're not being paid according to what you deserve. Ian, how about other benefits? Uh, Are employees entitled to vacation and sick leave uh, currently? No. Not in the United States. Um, An employer does not have to, there's no legal requirement that an employer offer paid vacation or paid sick time. A lot of employers do to, in order to remain competitive and attract employees, but no, there's no legal requirement that an employer pay vacation or sick time. How about the Family Medical Leave Act? Uh, We hear a lot of talk about that. Under what circumstances is someone entitled to take a medical leave uh, in their job? So employees who are covered by the Family Medical Leave Act work at an employer with 50 or more employees. They have to have worked there for a year. Uh, They have to work a certain number of hours, basically uh, more than 1,250 hours in a year. And if they meet all those requirements, and that leaves out a whole bunch of employees, But if you're covered by the FMLA, you are entitled to job protection for up to 12 weeks, and it can be taken all at once or what's called intermittently, as needed, for up to 12 weeks uh, for a serious health condition, a serious medical condition. 
the thing about the FMLA, it's great in that it, it protects employees from losing their job if they have to be off of work for 12 weeks because they've um, been diagnosed with cancer and need treatment, or they've had a, had a child and they uh, need to be off to, for their own health to recover from the childbirth and also to care for their baby and bond with their baby, but it's unpaid leave. So there's no legal requirement that that FMLA leave be paid. Some employers do have paid sick time or short-term disability policies that augment the FMLA, but the FMLA is unpaid right now. There's been some talk recently about paid leave, paid sick leave, and with the COVID-19 pandemic, there there was some legislation passed that provides a very small amount of paid sick leave under certain circumstances for COVID-19 related absences. So there's been some progress, but we're still really far away from protecting employees uh, when they face a health crisis or a family member faces a health crisis. Okay. So we've talked about the importance of employees documenting uh, their work performance, responding to warnings, responding to PIPs, uh, and things like that. And yet some employees do get fired from their jobs. Um, and oftentimes an employer will give the employee that they're firing an option to resign in lieu of termination. What are your thoughts? What's the thought process an employee ought to go through when they're given the option to resign rather than be formally terminated? Well, the question's are are they still going to be eligible for unemployment benefits? Generally, if an employee resigns or quits their employment, generally they're not going to be entitled for, to unemployment benefits. So the employee needs to be careful there. Also, under uh, these laws, they require an adverse employment action. So I always advise employees not to quit. Don't quit your employment take the termination and then we'll, we'll deal with it. We'll, we'll try to negotiate after the fact, uh, cleaning up your employment reference, getting a letter of reference as we try to work through the termination with the employee and their employer. Now, if the employer has actually said, you're terminated, but I'm giving you the opportunity to resign in lieu of termination, unemployment benefits should be still allowed in Ohio at least. But I think it's better for that employee to get some advice from an an employment attorney uh, before they make that decision, because there can be some downsides to that. You know, Kelly Myers, many employees are very loyal to their employer, but at some point, you know, they might be there for 10, 12 years, invest a lot of time, but then they grow unhappy over, I don't know, one, two, three years. Maybe they try to do some of these rebuttals and it just doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. What, what's your advice about a current employee who's unhappy on the job about whether or not they ought to stick it out or look for a new one? Well, you spend a lot of time at work. You spend more time at work oftentimes than you spend with your family. And your quality of work life is really important uh, for your quality of life. Now, I find oftentimes employees kind of get stuck. They feel They feel like they just don't have any options and they can't get out. And I think that comes after kind of being beaten down for 
a couple of years, maybe working for a bad supervisor who's just done nothing but criticize you and, and, and make the employee unhappy. So I think mm-hmm. it's important for the employee to try to remember that they still have some power. They, they can't really affect how their supervisor is treating them, but they can look for other opportunities. Um, they can start looking around for other uh, employment options. I think sometimes it's baby steps. Just get your resume updated. Start networking. Maybe start talking to some friends who've gone to other places and talk to them. Uh, there are a lot of great career coaches out there that can talk to the employee about next steps or act two of their lives. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think that it's important for an employee to try to remember that they do have some options and it may not be easy to find a job, but it may be easier than, than you fear and easier than you think. And it's, it's, it's hard to leave because oftentimes, even if one supervisor is making your life miserable, there's still coworkers that you really enjoy seeing and working with, and you have been loyal to a company. But I think if you're, if you're unhappy, you really should start looking at your options and, and finding a better fit for yourself. Yeah, I guess the old adage is true. It's easier to find a job while you have a job rather than after you've either quit or been fired. But, hey, Kelly, uh, this has been a lot to cover today. I wish we had more time. I think it's been somewhat fun. It's a serious topic, but it's certainly been enlightening. So thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Randy. I'm happy to have spent this past hour with you. Take care. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Kelly. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you're a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll tune in next time when we explore more about working. I want to conclude this episode from Studs Terkel that I find valuable. Quote, work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than apathy. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying, unquote. Let's hope that we can all find daily meaning as well as daily bread and recognition as well as monetary benefits. See you next time on Freaking Out About Work and please spread the word if you have enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends how easy it is to go to freakingoutabout.com. And freaking out about is all one word. Thank you, everyone.